I'd like to share an account from a woman whose name you might recognize. Cornelia Ten Boom, better known as Corrie Ten Boom, was born in the Netherlands in 1892, a daughter of a watchmaker named Casper Ten Boom. She was the youngest of four, had two sisters, Betsy and Nolly, and a brother, Wilhelm. The Ten Boom family had a strong, robust faith in Jesus Christ. They went to a Dutch Reform church, uh, deeply invested in the, the local church there, the community that they had. Uh, Corey ended up following her father's footsteps and became a watchmaker herself. Uh, not only was she a watchmaker, she also established a club for teenage girls, for leadership development, resource provision, teaching, mentoring, training in life skills, had a heart for people, a, a heart that beat for people. The Ten Boom family lived in an apartment above Casper's watch shop, and in 1940, when Nazi Germany began to invade neighboring European nations, including the Netherlands, the Ten Boom family watch shop and their apartment became a harbor for hunted people. Persecuted Jews, the watch shop provided a facade to cover their home. They rigged up their house to hide these people. A secret room the size of a small closet was built into Corey's bedroom behind a false wall. They added a shaft for air to provide those people in hiding fresh air. Could hold up to six people. They had to stand quiet and still. When the Gestapo made security sweeps through their neighborhood, a buzzer would go off in their house from the watch shop entry to notify people up in the hiding place. On February 28th, 1944, one of their own countrymen, a Dutch informant, ratted out the Ten Boom family, and immediately the Gestapo raided the watch shop and their apartment above it, arrested all of the Ten Boom family, but they did not find the six Jews concealed in the hiding place. Ten days later, Casper, the father, died in prison. Corey and her sister Betsy were transferred to Ravensbrück concentration camp near Berlin. Betsy died there December 16, 1944, and 12 days later, Corey was released from the concentration camp. And in the years that followed, Corey returned to the Netherlands, established a, a ministry sharing her story, preaching the gospel, visited concentration camps for survivors, as well as those in her own country and other Germans who participated willingly in what the Nazis were doing. She spoke extensively, traveled to 60 countries. And one afternoon, one Sunday, she found herself back in Germany at a church speaking there, telling her story. And after speaking, a German former soldier recognized her, came up to her. He had worked at Ravensbrück concentration camp and had been transformed. This former soldier had become a Christian as the years had gone on. And he knew what he needed to do. He needed to approach this former prisoner that he had persecuted. And so he walked up to Corey after she was finished speaking. And he said, I need to ask for your forgiveness. I realize the atrocities I committed at Ravensbrück, and I want to ask you for forgiveness. Now, 
in those moments, Corey Ten Boom was faced with a decision. She had just preached the gospel about God's free, unmerited, undeserved grace to wretched people, to sinners. And so what would she do? How would she respond to this request for mercy? Corey writes this about her encounter with her enemy. I stood still there with coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You, Lord, can supply the feeling. So woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down. My arm sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother, I cried with all of my heart. For a long time, we grasped each other, hand in hand, the former guard and the former prisoner, together clutching each other. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did in that moment. She said, I'd never known God's love so intensely, so perfectly in that moment that I loved my enemy. Friends, this is a picture of love made perfect. This is the love of Jesus Christ that he offers to us, his own enemies, people, reprobate of mind. This is the kind of love that I want to explore with you this morning. Love made perfect. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, you can find on page 811 in the Bibles we provided on your chairs. We're currently in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. This series is called The Ways of the King, because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches the ethic of his kingdom, what it looks like to be a citizen of King Jesus, to follow in his footsteps, to embody his character. And love for your enemies is one of the qualities of the king. The ways of the king, Matthew 5, I'll read verses 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's the take-home truth that I want to, to leave you with. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. Love for your enemy is love made perfect. Love for your enemy is love made perfect. Love to the fullest degree, to the highest extent. Love for your enemy is love made perfect. So I'm going to organize our time in this passage in four parts. And here's the first part that we see. A distortion of God's word. 
we see a distortion of God's word. Jesus says in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, if you're joining us uh, in this series for the first time, I want to just orient you a little bit and provide a little bit of review. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount for several weeks now, and within the Sermon on the Mount, right after the Beatitudes, we see Jesus teaching a series of six clarifications or six corrections. And so you'll notice this introductory phrase that is repeated in these six paragraphs that we were in the midst of studying. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you six times over. And then Jesus goes on to deal with the correction. He speaks of anger, lust, divorce, truth-telling, and in this instance, how we're to approach, how we are to approach our enemies. Six deeply important and deeply personal, sensitive areas of our lives, Jesus hits head on. He speaks truth to the tender areas. He is correcting not the Old Testament itself, but misinterpretations, misapplications of the Old Testament. And God's word is perfect, it's pure. But the interpretations over time became distorted or corrupt. And so that's what Jesus is addressing, the circulating misinterpretations, misapplications of his day. So that's what he's doing here in Matthew 5, 43. He's correcting a distorted understanding that was present in his day on how people were to approach their enemies. Did people have license to hate their enemy? You will not find anywhere in Scripture a command from God to hate your enemy. Nowhere. This is a distortion. It's a corruption of what people thought God said. Nowhere do we find a command to hate one's enemy. It doesn't exist. God doesn't teach that. You will, however, encounter in Scripture God's hatred towards evil and those who perpetrate evil impenitently, resolutely, with no repentance, no change. You will. So, fair warning, I'll just give you an example. Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 and 6. Hear God's heart, his moral opposition against evil. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 through 6. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Make no mistake, God is adamantly, morally opposed to evil and those who perpetrate evil impenitently, resolutely, without change, without deterrence. He would not be God if he didn't treat evil this way. He would not be good, in fact, if he was not morally opposed to evil perpetrated in this world. So yes, we see in Scripture God's rightful hatred of evil and those who resolutely perpetrate it. You see that. But nowhere in the Bible will you find God commanding his people to hate their enemies. God is God. He is the one who has vengeance. He is the one who will have a day of reckoning for every person. Justice is in his hands. Nowhere are we called to hate evildoers. You don't find that. 
This circulating license in Jesus' day to hate one's enemies was a corruption of God's word, a distortion of God's word. Now, before we point the finger of of Jews in Jesus' day who circulated this teaching, we need to think about their own context. What was their context? What was their circumstance? They were a people under Roman occupation, an oppressed people. Foreigners had invaded their homeland. They were unhappy under Roman occupation. The Romans were their enemies. Isn't their hatred for their enemy justifiable? No, Jesus says. He confronts that circulating license to hate one's enemy. But you can understand, put yourself in the shoes of the Jews, occupied for hundreds of years by the Romans. You need to kind of approximate to their experience. Brothers and sisters, we do not reserve the right to make Scripture say what we want it to say, no matter our circumstances, no matter our difficulty, no matter what we walk through. We cannot add to God's Word. We cannot subtract from God's Word. We have to stay on the line of God's Word. It's the safest place to be. So first we see in this passage a distortion of God's Word. Nowhere do you see a command from God to hate your enemy. Nowhere. Second, Contrary to this distortion, we find a proclamation and proof of God's love. A proclamation and proof of God's love. Let's look again at verses 44 through 45. Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So contrary to the license of that day that was rampant about hating one's enemies, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Notice here that prayer is a tangible application of love. Prayer is a way that we love other people, and in particular, our enemies, when sometimes there's nothing else we can do but pray for them, but we don't do it. Our hearts are hardened toward them. Prayer is a means of loving others, and in this case, the countercultural call to love your enemy, to pray for your persecutor. What does prayer do in the heart of the one who prays? What does prayer do inside of us toward our persecutor. Prayer taps us into the deep recesses of God's compassion. We begin to see as God sees and to do as God does. Prayer is that line of communication with the creator of the universe, the Lord of the universe, who has unparalleled compassion. And when we pray, we begin to see people as he does. We begin to receive the compassion that he has. Prayer will manage to soften your heart towards the one who has wronged you. And it will be difficult. I don't want to sugarcoat this. This is praying for people who've wounded you. Who are those people? And what would it look like for you to pray for them, to plead for them before a holy God that he might change them and change your heart towards them? Prayer taps us into the deep reservoir of compassion that God has. Well, Jesus didn't just 
teach this truth. He embodied it, didn't he? As he's hanging on the cross, bloodied, naked, quivering, what is his response to his revilers, to the passers-by that mocked him, to the one criminal who reviled him? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? Jesus prayed. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Out of the depths of his compassion, he prayed for people who hated him. Jesus didn't just teach this. He embodied it like any good preacher. He practiced it. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So who has wronged you in your life? What fresh wound do you have from another's mistreatment of you? And what might it look like to begin to pray for that person? Maybe even this week, it's helpful for me just to write down my prayers sometimes when I can't bring myself to mouth them. Start with scripture, begin to write down. Start even with Jesus' words here. Father, forgive him, forgive her. Had no idea what he or she was doing. Write it down and return to it and watch God tenderize your heart. Soften your heart towards that person. When we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, we show ourselves to be sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. That's where Jesus goes next. Notice what he says in verse 45. When you do this, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, like Father, like sons and daughters. That's what he's saying here. Those who father, follow the Father's will, as proclaimed here in Jesus' life and ministry, show themselves to be offspring of God. In Jesus' ministry, we'll see this later in Matthew chapter 12, one day he's teaching to a collection of people, some of them becoming disciples, some of them considering becoming disciples, and his biological family, they come, they think he's out of his mind, so they go and they try to restrain him. And somebody says at the door, Jesus, your, 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 your brother, your, your sisters, your mother are here. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brother and my sisters? Those who hear the word of God and do it, he, she, is my mother, my brother, my sister. He redefines family for us, doesn't he? The family of God is made up of those who do God's will. When we follow his will in loving our enemies, we show ourselves to be children of God. My mother uses all these old phrases, Dan, you're, you're a chip off the old block. You're just like your dad. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. This is what Jesus is getting at. Like father, like sons and daughters. When you love your enemies, you show yourself to be like your heavenly father, his progeny, his offspring. Jesus goes on to describe how his father has been exceedingly kind to all people, including his enemies, including people who oppose him, who rebel against him. Verse 45, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God is good to his creation. He's benevolent. He gives favor to people who don't deserve it. This is sometimes called common grace. Dylan used this phrase when he led us in a time of confession. Common grace is just God's care to his creation broadly. That psalm that I read to begin our service, Psalm 145, verses 1 through 9, the Lord is good to all. He's merciful to all. God has common grace, provision toward all of his creation. I mean, just think about some of these examples. The earth is tilted on its axis 
perfectly suited to sustain life. We are the perfect distance from the sun to sustain life, to be warm, not to be frozen nor scorched. It's perfect, the fine-tuning of the earth. Crops grow to feed us. We're able to have clothing, textiles, relationships. God is exceedingly good. The inherent healing capabilities of our bodies. It's been a hard weekend for my house. On, early on Friday morning, my mother at the airport, ready to go on a vacation, she, her foot gets tangled in her purse and she falls out of the car and hits her face on the asphalt. And her glasses smash into the bridge of her nose, breaks her nose, Six stitches here, six stitches here. She had a little brain bleed. Thankfully, it dissipated. Getting out of the car at the airport. And I saw the picture of her first. I couldn't even look at it. And then yesterday, I FaceTimed with her. It was like in three days. In three days, the progress. You know, she's on some pain meds, but her body, your body, my body, in time, has the capability to heal and to recover and restore. I was shocked when I saw her yesterday. I mean, she, she looked banged up, but not near as bad as she did three days ago. Our bodies, they're, they're, they're wired to res be restored. It's incredible. Relationships, who cares for you? Who do you go to when you're down? Who do you call? Who do you text? These are common grace blessings that people, whether they're Christians or not, whether they know God or not, whether they acknowledge God or not, they're there, and you're a recipient of them. Now, I know these provisions are not perfectly distributed in a fallen world. Don't hear me saying that. I'm about to speak of some American blessings here that we know that some other in the developing world do, do not know. But the point is, how has God been good to you and to all people? Look around. The evidence is there. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He, he showers the sun, radiant beams down on people to warm them. Maybe you're a skeptic considering Christ or you think this is a hoax. I just want to examine the last three hours of your life. What happened the last three hours? Let me just give you a brief tour of my own life. I woke up in these warm sheets. We have options of sheets. The cotton ones in the summer and then like the fleece ones in the winter. And we just changed them over. We've got options for sheets. They were warm. We keep our heat low, but we keep the sheets warm. I got out of bed, and I went to the, to the bathroom, and the toilet flushed with a button. And I washed my hands, and hot water came out of it. And I can get a shower, on-demand hot water. And I got out of the shower, and it created, I, opened my, I opened my closet, and there are options for sweaters and shirts. And my wife thought this one was too wrinkly. So we have means to, to get those out. And then you can go into the pantry. And Laura just made Chex Mix. So we have leftover rice checks, wheat checks, corn checks, and Honey Nut Cheers if you want. Options. I sit down at my table under my shelter and I eat. And then I can just walk to church. We're close. Some of you have a vehicle, you drive. Some of you have the amenity of the MBTA. You take, just, just survey the last two and a half hours of your life. 
What blessings have you experienced? They're everywhere. God is good to the just and the unjust. He is benevolent. Just, just survey your life. See his hand of provision. He is good to all. This is what Jesus is saying. God is good. Even in a fallen world, his goodness shines forth. So first, a distortion of God's word. Second, a proclamation and proof of God's love. Thirdly, a better love than what you witness in the world. A better love than what you witness in the world. In verses 46 and 47, Jesus holds his followers to a higher standard of love, a love better than what we witness in the world. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? So the question here is, by what standard, what measure, what bar do we hold ourselves up to? It makes all the difference. What are you aiming for? How are you measuring the uprightness of your life? The world's standard or God's? These tax collectors, these were people of ill repute, corrupt people, greedy people who could always be counted on to do the wrong thing. Even they know how to do good to people who do them good. That should not be your measuring line. The Gentiles, the pagans, they know how to treat people kindly who treat them kindly. That's not our standard. That's not what we're aiming for. Jesus has a different target in mind, a different measure, something divine, something, in fact, that is perfect. And that's where Jesus concludes this passage, the perfect standard. So we see a distortion of God's word, a proclamation and a proof of God's love, a better love than what you witness in the world, and fourthly and finally, love made perfect. Jesus says in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Whoa. Come on, pastor. What do we make of this? What do we do with this? Let this ruminate in your soul. Just as Dave Raffensperger preached last week, one of our elders, you are meant to feel the force of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, not to begin to kind of squirm and find the loophole out, the qualification out. You, therefore, Jesus says, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is talking about perfect love, love made perfect, love to the fullest application, to the highest degree, love for your enemy is love made perfect, the most difficult and most beautiful kind of love. The love that Corey Ten Boom experienced as she shook hands with her former persecutor a love so intense, so divine, that she'd ever experienced. This is love made perfect. And so when Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he's holding us to this divine standard of loving your enemy, praying for those who persecute you, being kind to those who malign you. This is divine love. It is game-changing, world-shaking love. 
the same kind of love that Jesus turned the world upside down and continues to do so. We have to realize where we came from. If you're a Christian, you have to realize this. You and I were enemies of God, hostile in mind towards him, justly deserving of his displeasure. This is what the scripture witness is. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for sinners, the ungodly, the people who opposed him. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would maybe die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we wanted nothing to do with him, Christ died for us. While we were mocking him, you and I were in the shoes of the mockers in Jesus' day. He died for us. That's his love, love, divine love, love for your enemy. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous suffering for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Do you hear his heart? He died for us, suffered for us, that he might bring us to God. We were alienated, separated in our sin, and through his atoning death, he bridges that massive gap that we could never have bridged. He bridges it. We come to him. Christ died for you. He died for me that he might bring us to God. That is the gospel. And it changes everything. You cannot give what you haven't received. A pitcher can't pour out what it doesn't have in it. And so this is where we need to land this morning. You cannot love your enemy unless you realize you've been loved as God's enemy. You can't love your enemy in this life unless you realize you've been loved as God's enemy. And you receive it by faith. You don't have to work for this. You don't have to claw your way to him. You just have to, with hands open wide, receive it. Christ loves you and died for you. The righteous dying for the unrighteous that we might be brought to God and be used by him to bring others to God. That's, that's the application payoff. When you and I love our enemies, we are used as instruments in his hand, bringing others to God. We don't save them, but we're little instruments that he uses to gather people to him. Love your enemies. It's divine love. Love for your enemy is love made perfect. By God's grace, may we love like this. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for the ways that it pushes us and challenges us, confronts us, counsels us, comforts us. Lord, we confess as we consider our wounds, some of them very fresh, that we can't do this. Lord, would you root us so deeply in the gospel of your son and understanding that we were once enemies, hostile in mind towards you, wanting nothing to do with you. But yet, in your mercy and your love, you pursued us, that you might bring us to you. Thank you for dying. Thank you for rising again. Oh, God, help us to trust in that. For some who are considering that message, Lord, may it fall upon their hearts that they would believe it wholeheartedly. For those of us who are struggling and, and, and shaky of our grasp on the gospel, would you firm that grasp up that we might love our enemies like you do. In Jesus' name, amen.